This episode of Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. If you would like to learn how to support this podcast, visit www.patreon.com slash writing excuses. Season 19, Episode 1. This is Writing Excuses. Interview with Abraham Verghese. Fifteen minutes long because you're in a hurry. And we're not that smart. I'm Mary Robinette. I'm Erin. I'm Howard. And we are joined today for our first episode of the new year with our special guest, Abraham Verghese. Thank you so much for joining us. Pleasure to be here. Thank you. Um, I have been reading your novel and uh, The Covenant of Water and, and, of course, have read your bio. But I was wondering if you could just quickly introduce yourself to our listeners. Sure. Uh, first of all, I should say that I wish you guys had been around when I was starting out writing. It would have been very <laughs> helpful. <laughs> um, I'm Abraham Verghese. I live in California. I'm the author of The Covenant of Water and uh, three other books, uh, one other novel, which was called Cutting for Stone, and two works of uh, nonfiction, uh, My Own Country and The Tennis Partner. Um, my day job is I work as a physician at Stanford University, and uh, yeah, that's me. It's amazing. Um, and, uh, and and I just want to say how much I really have been enjoying The Covenant of Water. There's such a, a richness to the language um, and, and a verisimilitude. So what we're going to be talking about with you, which is something I'm very excited about, is is how to kind of create that verisimilitude and also how to convey technical information, like medical information, in a way that is engaging to the reader. So we, we often talk about this idea of verisimilitude, the feeling that something is real. Um, when writing about medicine in particular, what have you found makes it feel real for the reader? And since you write both fiction and nonfiction, do you find that that changes between the two? Well, I think when I'm describing something medical, there probably isn't a lot of difference between the way I might do it in fiction or nonfiction, other than the fact that, you know, I'm making things up in terms of outcomes and so on. Um, but I think that, in a way, I think it's a challenge because in this day and age, most uh, most readers are also television viewers, and so there's... Mm. No part of the you know medical operation that's not familiar to them. This is not like writing in the days of Somerset Maugham when you know when he wrote about traveling to far islands. It was exciting because there was no other way readers could visualize those places. So you write about surgery, and most viewers have seen surgery on YouTube. Or so your 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 challenge is to write about it in a way that's somehow fresh and different from what they think they know about it from having seen the operation or seen the procedure or seen whatever it is you're writing about. And I think part of that is, you know, even though they may have seen something, they may not have realized what the crucial thing is in that mm -hmm. particular scene or, you know, what, what the insider's view is on what, what really matters and all the different things we're doing. So, I, you know, I, I think I'm hard-pressed to say more than that. Uh, I very often worry that I'm giving too much detail. And, um, you know, and clearly for some readers, it may well be too much detail. And for that, 
I really rely on my editor who you know, often will tell me it's not enough or rarely it's too much. So uh, I think I have a, I'm very conscious of not, not uh, taxing the reader with more than they need and trying to keep it informative and entertaining. And it's a fine balance. You know, I find that uh, if, when the time comes to rewrite, it is a lot easier to take words out than to put words back in. And so erring on the side of too much information means, oh, all, all, I, need, all I need to do is remove the wrong ones and I will be left with uh, exactly what I need rather than needing to sit down and add a bunch of detail that I didn't realize was missing. Yeah, I also love what you said about figuring out what matters and that mm -hmm. using that as a way to focus in. And I'm curious, like, how do you decide in a certain scene what it is that matters, like, to you, to the characters, to the readers, in order to focus in like that? Well, I'm not sure that I have a blanket rule about that. But, for example, um, when I was describing a particularly hazardous labor scene in, in the Covenant of Water, I'm thinking a lot about, you know, the layperson involved in that, delivering that child, what this must seem like to them. You know, they obviously don't have the medical term, so they're looking at it through a different lens than, say, I might look at. Uh, I might look at the scene. Also, I'm trying to really understand what the patient might be going through. So, for example, you know, in, in terms of the feelings of a woman giving birth, Obviously, that's something that I can only imagine. I can't, you know, I don't have personal experience of that. But I was able to talk to, you know, the women around me, but also to a gynecologist friend who was also a mother. And, you know, there were some things she talked about that I would never have found myself or by imagining the scene. She talked about the tremendous isolation the moment labor starts. You know, despite the fact that there's all these people around you, suddenly it's you against the world, you know, everybody else sort of mm -hmm. disappears. Your, your focus is so intense on yourself. So I'm not sure how to give you more specifics than that, but, um, you know, I think it's, um, it's recognizing, I mean, it's rare that I'm describing something from the point of view of um, purely of a physician. But when I am, even then, if it's routine for the physician, I need to convey in that routineness what are the things that this person uh, is looking for? What is central to this whole complicated act? Um, and that's often true in, in my medical practice, for example. You know, people uh, come with a lot of compl complex complaints, and but there are key words they say. There are key things they say that are much more important than other things they don't say, or, or other things they say. Or sometimes it's what they don't say that matters, and... You know, so certain words, certain acts are terribly important. And I try to make sure I underline that for the reader. Yeah, for I think example, that... chest pain is pretty common. But chest pain with any tinge of anxiety and sweating, say, that comes with the chest pain, just makes little alarm bells go off. Because then this is probably a different kind of chest pain. So just small, that's, that may be, not be the best example, but I, just to give you a oh, sense. No, that's, a, that, that's a good example. I had, I had uh, chest pain and then I had a 
a dull ache spreading down my left arm. And I decided this was 99. This was, you know, 25 years ago. I uh, decided to go into the hospital and they said, well, good news. Um, yes, a lot of what you're experiencing is indigestion. Bad news, your heart is doing a thing and we're not going to let you leave for three days. Um, and and I learned all kinds of new words. You know, my <laughs> point of view from the beginning was, yeah, my chest hurts and my arm aches. And at the end, I had all kinds of medical terminology and things that if I were being described in a book, uh, that would be my character arc. Yeah, I think the, the, the other that's well said. And I think the other thing that I have to keep in mind is not to belabor the reader with medical information that's gratuitous. It has to serve a purpose, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and I think readers are interested in technical details of a world that they don't know very well. So whether it's Tom Clancy on submarines or, I don't know, Arthur Haley on the working of an airport, I think we as readers have an inherent interest in the workings of a locale and a profession that we don't have a great deal of familiarity with. And so you want to provide them enough details to create the verisimilitude that you mentioned, but not so many to sort of flash your your knowledge. You know, you don't want to just yeah. pour out words to impress them. It's a fine line. And I think, uh, as you as you said, the real art is in revision. It's not really in the writing of the scene. It's in the many, many attempts at revision that, you know, hone it down. One of the things that uh, I, I'm struck by as we're, we're talking is about the difference between um, insider knowledge and uh, translating it for an audience. I, I find that often some of the things that are the most difficult for me to write are things that I have a deep, intimate knowledge of because I can't tell what I have to unpack for the reader. Um, and you're dealing with a couple of different knowledge bases in this book, uh, both your medical knowledge, but also the knowledge of this particular community. And I can see the, you know, my writer brain can see the places that you are translating for outsiders, um, where you will use a word and then you will say, and this is what this word means. But it's all very much, um, for me, uh, seated in in point of view, in um, in the the tactile details, the way the character is is moving through the world, I think one of the questions that I have is um, like, do you? And I'm certain that the answer is going to be it depends, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Um, do you find that you just write it and then rely on your editor to say, oh, you're going to need to unpack that for people, or do you have a a sense of, oh, I should probably pause to explain this before I carry on. Yeah, I think I have a pretty good sense. Uh, so, uh, you know, I, I don't really rely on the editor to do the hard work for me. I really have to catch myself if I feel I've, I've used a term that's very familiar to me, but may not be for the reader. On the other hand, you don't want to keep stopping to say, oh, and that word means this. So you, I will often use a big word or an unfamiliar word and as a reader, I enjoy it when I don't know the word, but the next sentence or the context makes it clear what this might mm -hmm. be. You know, for example, I love reading Horatio Hornblower series on sailing or, uh, you know, the, uh, the, the whole uh, Aubrey Martin and uh, oh, help me out. The other big sailing 
Patrick, um, Patrick O'Brien, is that Patrick right? Patrick O'Brien, yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I still don't know a Lee Shore from a, from a, a non-Lee <laughs> Shore, but it doesn't really matter. I sort of get the gist of it, and mm-hmm. I think that's what you're after. You're not for a complete explication, but enough so that the reader is not lost. And, and by the way, I, I, I meet readers from time to time who tell me, I had to skip over all the medical parts, and I, I just have to bite my tongue when I, when I hear that because... <laughs> <laughs> I don't want them to skip anything, but, you know, some people do for whatever reason. Yeah. Well, th- speaking of uh, things we don't want you to skip, we're going to pause right now, uh, take a quick break. And then when we come back, we're going to talk more about how to make things feel real without overwhelming the reader. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Yeah, I've been uh, drawn to this book that I read about, I don't know where, and I ordered. It's called uh, How to Draw a Novel. And uh, the title alone is intriguing. It's by Martin Solaris, who's a fairly well-known foreign writer. I don't think his work is as well known to us. But it literally has, uh, it's a very erudite um, meditation on novels. But he uses graphics to sort of illustrate the course of particular novels. So you have a little figure comparing Moby Dick to... Wuthering Heights, and it's really quite entertaining. The figures are sparse, and there's a lot of text in between, but the whole thing is a delight. So that's what I'm recommending and reading right now. And that's How to Draw a Novel by Martin Solaris. Exactly. Sounds amazing. Well, let's dive back in. Um, One of the other things that you do when you're you're not only dealing with the technical information, but the covenant of water takes place over multiple generations of a family. And one of the things that I find fascinating is how to convey time passing um, and how to to show the connections between generations. When you were diving into this, did you did you have uh, touch points in your head about, oh, if I if I mention this or I want to draw this piece of history out? No, not really. I mean, I, I knew, there were very few things I knew about this novel before I started, I'm embarrassed <laughs> to say. Uh, I knew the geography, and I think that's terribly important because, mm-hmm. you know, setting this in South India, in this community of Christians who believe they're Religion came when St. Thomas the Apostle landed on the shores of Kerala or India in in 52 AD. That was an important decision because the same story anywhere else, you know, in Hoboken or somewhere would be a very, very different story. Mm -hmm. I also knew that I wanted it to be multi-generational, mostly because, you know, uh, as someone who's practiced medicine for almost 40 years now, I really liked being able to see in my early years some entity for which we just had a label but no understanding Mm. and then watch it evolve over decades to where the molecular basis was better understood and then eventually completely understood and then we have a diagnostic test and then we have 
treatment. And, you know, that sort of unfolding requires generations. So mm-hmm. I knew that much. Um, but I didn't really know much else. And uh, so I was sort of, um, as I was writing, I actually had a spreadsheet with the characters when they were born, you know, when they died. I had a parallel column with milestones from my grandparents and parents' lives just because they were sort of helpful touchstones in terms of helping me imagine that moment in time, you know, rather than saying, okay, World War One, you know, you can say, well, the, the year my grandparents got married or something mm-hmm. like that, you know. Mm-hmm. And then I had a third column with milestones in world history that pertain to that region, you know, for example, um, seminal events in the long, long journey towards emancipation from the British in, in India. Mm-hmm. It wasn't all about independence in, you know, uh, Independence Day, August 15th. There were many, many, many milestones, hundreds of years of them leading up to that. And of course, world events. And then yet another column for medical milestones, because I had to keep in mind that right. my current medical knowledge mm. is not the knowledge I should be using describing something. I had to stay true to the knowledge of that time. So I suppose in that sense, I was very conscious of of time and history, but I didn't really know till I was well into the writing how to weave all these elements together and when to switch scenes. One very useful thing an editor told me many years ago was, you know, the great magical thing about a a blank page or a, or a white page or a you know a new chapter is that you can skip over years just by doing that. You don't really need explanation. <laughs> It was just a huge revelation for me at the time. I think it was with Cutting for Stone. And so, you know, you make use of that. The, the white yeah. space allows you to just sail through time. As an aside, um, I think I deserve an award for not shouting yes when you said <laughs> spreadsheet because I have preached <laughs> spreadsheets a lot. Uh, and I use them in exactly the same way. Columns for... Uh, columns for events, columns for, uh, you know, character lives. I even have a column sometimes that describes what I'll call story beats. You know, I want, you know, this story beat needs to be uh, Dark Knight of the Soul, or this needs to be a moment where I tell the reader uh, that this is a character they can trust, or this is a character they they can't trust. Um, Very explicit notes to me, so that when I sit down to write, I can write words that are <laughs> better than that. I think it's going to be really comforting for our listeners. Um, a, a couple of us, like I am, I'm a, I'm an outliner usually, and I know that a lot of listeners are people who who garden, who find their way through the novel, and I think it it will be very comforting for them to hear. Oh, yeah, I didn't. I I sat down and I kind of found my way through the novel. I, it's uh, it, it, Especially if they, they pick up the novel and read it, which feels so cohesive after, after it's all done. I was just going to say, I wonder a little bit, like how do you, you know, if you are gardening, if you are finding your way through, but also you have this structure, these columns that like sort of form a, a trellis, let's say in the garden, sort of how do you ensure that you, you know, that you garden to it? How do you make sure that like, 
your spreadsheet says X, but you're really feeling Y as you're writing. How do you reconcile between those differences to make sure that you're telling something that both works and also works for you? Yeah, I mean, first of all, I should say the spreadsheet came much, much later. And I'm almost embarrassed to confess this, but um, my books have taken a long time. The last novel I wrote, Cutting for Stone, was 14 years before this one. Um, And I spent eight years writing that novel. So with this novel, I really wanted to not spend eight years or 14 years. I wanted it to be (laughs) a few years. So I really wish I could have plotted out the whole novel. In fact, on my on my right side is this white board with a fairly extensive drawing of the entire novel, uh, which I know your listeners can't see, but uh, you guys can. Um, you know, and so wow. I would plot out the entire novel. I love to think visually, so I draw things out kind of cartoon fashion, and then I would start writing, only to find that you know the novel was wandering off in a completely different direction. And so then I would photograph the whiteboard and start all over again. So to be quite honest, I started with a mood. I started with one character, and that is a young bride uh, on her wedding day in 1900. Uh, And I vaguely knew that I wanted three generations. I knew where this was situated, but I really didn't know the central conflict of this novel. I didn't know very much of anything. Mm. And, um, you know, I wish I wasn't that kind of writer. I wish I knew everything that was going to happen. There are writers like that. I, I'm, a, I'm a friend of John Irving who's been a mentor and a correspondent for many, many years. And, you know, I'm just, I'm amazed. He knows the first and last line of the novel before he starts. He knows the first and last line of every chapter. And so when he begins, it's not that, it's not that new things don't come up, but he really knows the entire story. And he has said, he, he will say, if you don't know what you're showing to the reader and what you're hiding and when you're going to reveal it, if you're just making it up as you go along, Abraham, then you're not a writer. You're just an ordinary liar. You know, and <laughs> I think he's I right. To, um, I hate to disagree with John Irving, but... Um, <laughs> well, so I, what I was going to say is that at, at the end of my stumbling process of, you know, pushing this feeling along and many dead ends and, you know, hundreds of pages and months and months in the wrong direction, realizing that that's not the novel. There is a point where you finally arrive where you, you know, for me it was to almost halfway and two thirds into the novel where I couldn't, I could suddenly see everything, mm-hmm. see exactly how it ended. And immediately many extraneous but important characters and scenes fall away. You realize that they're not critical to to this outcome. So I think we eventually all arrive at the same place as John does, but he spends many months in the planning before he be- embarks on it. And so you could say that my writing for all those years was an inefficient way to come to that same point. It may be inefficient, but I would, I I'll put a stake in the ground and say, you're not just a writer, you're an extraordinary writer, and you're a really good liar. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I'm happy to take that from you. I I, uh, (laughs) I, I feel very blessed, honestly. I mean, you you write without any sense of how it's going to be received. So hearing things like this now are wonderful. But at the time, you're not sure. You're you're just doing your best, you know? I, I think we all feel that sense of, oh, I'm just muddling through and hopefully no one catches me. 
Um, but since you are uh, you're a, a man of science, I'm just going to remind you and our listeners that there's in science there's no such thing as a failed experiment, and in writing there's no such thing as a wasted word. You hmm. you find the story often by discovering what the story is not. Uh, Nancy Kress, <laughs> yeah, Nancy Kress, who's uh, one of my my favorite writers, um, said that her process is that she uh, she writes a draft of the story. Um, she doesn't outline, she blunders her way through it. And then when she finishes, she knows what the story is about and she tosses her first draft completely and starts over from scratch. And this time she knows what the story is. So she just writes an extremely long detailed outline. (laughs) You know, I think, uh, very much like you, I'm fascinated by process and I, Mm -hmm. you know, in my, in my library, such as it is in my study, I have bookshelves, very well organized fiction, nonfiction, poetry, one whole shelf of, you know, marriage, self-help, which didn't help, by the way. <laughs> and then I have a whole section on writing uh, because I keep thinking there'll be some book there that's going to give me the key to make this process <laughs> more efficient. And I, I finally gave up when I bought a, a book recently and they were quoting me. You know, here I was trying to find the key and they're they're quoting something I said, and I, I think we just all have to muddle our way through it. And some of this is organic to the individual. You just can't adopt somebody else's method and have it work for you. It doesn't always happen that way. I, that is so true. And I think that's actually a great note for us to move to our homework. Uh, and I think you've got some homework for us. Yeah, I think uh, I was going to suggest something that I found useful is to either take something you've written that describes something sort of a passive, a, a landscape or a, yeah, ideally a landscape, but then write it in three different moods. Uh, pretend that someone very precious to you has just died and you're now gazing at this and you describe the landscape without any reference to this event in your life. And the second time you write it, uh, at a moment of great joy, whatever that is, birth of your first child, and you're looking at the landscape. And again, no reference to what just happened to you. And the third time, imagine you're in a terrible rage and you're describing this landscape. And you can actually see this happening in the best of Dostoevsky and some of the other writers where the very landscape is affected by the mood of that the, that the narrator is carrying into that scene. It's quite beautiful. It's a good exercise to show us, you know, how even the most unrelated things to the emotion and the characters can still take on the hue of the prevailing emotion. Oh, that's wonderful homework. Thank you so much for that. And thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. This has been Writing Excuses. You're out of excuses. Now go write. We love hearing about your successes. Have you sold a short story or finished your first novel? Tell us about it. Tell us about how you've applied the stuff that we've been talking about. Use the hashtag WXSuccess on social media or drop us a line at success at writingexcuses.com. Writing Excuses has been brought to you by our listeners, patrons, and friends. For this episode, your hosts were Mary Robinette Kowal, Dong Wan Song, Aaron Roberts, and Howard Taylor. 
This episode was engineered by Marshall Carr Jr., mastered by Alex Jackson, and produced by Emma Reynolds. For more information, visit writingexcuses.com. If you aren't familiar with Locus Magazine, they're a long-standing and respected website, magazine archive, and resource for science fiction, fantasy, and horror. Basically, they're the industry magazine for our genre. They also run the annual Locus Awards, a top-tier award that recognizes new, diverse, and excellent voices in speculative fiction. They tell the storyteller's stories through author interviews, book reviews, curated reading lists, international industry news, obituaries, and more. Locus has meant a lot to me, both personally and professionally. In my career, I've been interviewed by them, and I've also turned to them as a source of understanding who is involved in the industry. Locus is holding their annual fundraising drive to keep their doors open, lights on, and future bright. I'll be contributing to their crowdfunding campaign by donating a cutscene, some original art, and a couple of other things like... Do you want to do a one-on-one chat with me? So join me in supporting Locus.